Hello everyone and welcome to Reality Unraveled, a podcast where we try to get to the bottom of complex issues ranging from science and technology to political and social issues. I'm one of your hosts, James. And I'm Chris. And today we're going to be doing a book review on a book called Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari. So so what did you think? Did you like the book? or? You know, James, I have been uh, going back and forth on how my feelings on this book. There are times when I really enjoy it and I could... Uh, you know, could recommend this book to a lot of people, and there are other times when it really feels um, like there's a like he has a specific audience in mind. Like you're forcing yourself to get through it. Or? Yeah, you know, actually, um, a point I wanted to make too is I, I follow this video game critic, and he mentions that a lot. So when he plays video games, there's often times he's got to stop himself and he asks himself, like, would I be playing this if it's not my job? And if the answer is no, that's kind of answers some of the review to his questions. Like I am yeah, not having that's fun. Really, that's here. a good point. So, so I tried to do that with the book, and there were definitely a few times when I was like, "Man, if I wasn't trying to record this podcast, like <laughs> throwing this book away." So, what were your complaints? Uh, so my complaints are, it, you know, it's it's kind of ri- it's um, it's definitely intellectual. I mean, it's it's yeah. not it's not a light read. Like it's not like Harry Potter where you're gonna pick it up and blow through it in a in and an it's, afternoon it's takes yeah, some it's, mental fortitude yeah yeah th- those are some things i you know i almost did like that like i like that it was uh, it was written on a higher level mm-hmm. i wouldn't recommend it for uh, honestly i'd say it was probably written on a um college maybe college level yeah collegiate level uh maybe the you know maybe a postgraduate light read <laughs> that's about all i would say yeah i, I could see that for sure you know yeah. you know also he definitely takes to the point that you have some kind of uh background already history and sociology and stuff yeah i thought that too and even biology yeah yeah not that it would there were not really any points where i felt like it was over my head but it definitely yeah it's not really a fun read that being said he he does have a lot of interesting uh a lot of interesting points and also like some things that i didn't know so i definitely learned some things from this book yeah I, I like one of the things I like about it is he's almost like I, I feel like he writes as if he's like an external observer, sort of like he's if he was like an alien who came to Earth and was like, oh, look at these interesting monkeys. They're past the point of the agricultural revolution. And they're at this point, you know, he's sort of like discusses like he's disconnected from the human race as if he's like a just an observer which it's kind of the the goal of i guess an anthropologist or a you know like someone who's studying human history or historian yeah. but would it be fair i mean we are pretty disconnected from humans three hundred thousand years ago oh yeah so there's a there's that being said too but you know he he makes a lot of comparisons to the modern day which i really love so he uh for example one of my one of the things i really love that i learned from this book was uh when he talks about how we we came from, like, basically 30,000 years, we went from being at the bottom of a food chain uh, to being at the top of every food chain. Yeah, I mean, we're well beyond, too, not even at the top. Like, we have to prevent ourselves causing species to go extinct. Like, we have to self-regulate in order to curb our ability to devastate natural environments. Yeah. Uh, but, but anyway, uh, a point he mentions it, from that is that we, so we still have, like, genetically, we're still the same as yeah. we were at the bottom of the food chain. So we still carry all these, all these like uh, low-level uh, organisms and, and lower-level animals. Like, for example, we're very fearful yeah. uh, of, of things, which is how you would expect. You know, like, lions aren't afraid of shit. 
if you walk up to a lion with a gun, you know, he's not going to be afraid of you because he's got no reason, you know, he doesn't know what you are. He's never been afraid of anything in his entire life. Yeah. Why would he be afraid assuming, of you? assuming he's not been exposed to hunting pressure. Yeah, but, you know, wariness. lion, just instinctually, if you, you know, took a lion that was born and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. By instinct, yeah, inst- that's the key, instinct. They... They can learn to be afraid of humans, but by default, they're not. You know, another thing is, uh, like, our growth rate. We have a growth rate of, like, a bacteria. <laughs> we increase, you know, we, we breed so fast. Exponentially. Yeah. Well, that, that was one of the interesting things he talked about, about humans being actually one of the slower, like, a lot of animals, like uh, deer or, like, ungulates, for, for instance, are able to, like, fend for themselves with, I think, in, like, a year uh, or, or so. Like, you come out of the uh, out of the womb and they're already feeding... Yeah. independently and they're like, within six months they're able to yeah full they come out of the womb ready to walk and they're able to fend for themselves within six to eight months whereas humans get like 18 years of yeah, yeah. and some of them still can't do it so that, that was interesting that he kind of suggested that that might be a result of our social uh like the fact that we're in such tight-knit groups and therefore like the need like the, the most i think he said the most defenseless creature in existence is a human baby it's just like if it's found on its own it's done like if it if it gets separated from the group it's it, it it's done so man that's okay so again to go uh into some of my favorite things about this book like he makes some really great social commentaries yeah about, uh you know how like for example why do people you know why do girls enjoy talking about like they go to the bathroom. They talk about man that that Chris kid is a total scumbag, and his friend James is a is an asshole too. Yeah, I mean, they're pretty much saying that all the time, as, as far yeah. as I hear. But, you know, just like real life. But um, so <laughs> to suggest that that is a is, is part of like the human race. It's more than just learned. It's it's hardwired. Yeah, and and it, the reason it kind of you know why does gossip trend towards like the negative. And it's because of a, it's a, like a warning sign. Like, yeah. okay, Chris and James are bad people. I need to stay away from them in the tribe. Yeah, like Chris is untrustworthy or like he won't repay his debts or he's known to steal or like he'll take more than his due. So like one of our primary purposes with communication was gossip to show who was valuable members and just basically to know your ground in the social hierarchy. Yeah. I really like those. Uh, so before before we go much further, I wanted to do like a real brief summary, just so people are like, "What what the hell is this book even about?" Okay. So it, basically, this the whole book. The book is about our human history as far as science understands it, which there's plenty of holes and there's pl- plenty of guesswork. But as far as we know, just to give the listeners a timeline, uh, about 65 million years ago was when the dinosaurs went extinct. Humans were nowhere to be seen on the on the landscape. About two million years ago, the the genus Homo, which is Homo sapiens and several other forms of primates, hit the scene. And then about 200,000 years ago is when Homo sapiens, which stands for wise ape, and that's that's when we hit the scene. So we're like a blip on the radar in terms of the uh, evolutionary timescale. And so he he discusses basically how we came from there, there was came from monkeys and there was different many different groups of sapiens on the map at the same time and how we kind of coexisted some many went i mean all of them except for us went extinct and he discusses sort of why some of the some of the other ones went extinct and then he goes into 
what he calls three different revolutions, which were cognitive, agricultural, and scientific. And they're pretty self-explanatory. The cognitive revolution was around 70,000 years ago, where we started to develop very intricate language and social structures and tools, basically like what you see in modern society, early forms of what you see in modern society. And then the agricultural revolution is self-explanatory. That was about 12,000 years ago. Hunter-gatherer tribes started to settle down and develop agriculture. And then the scientific revolution, which I guess we'll, we'll discuss next week, uh, is to be that that was only 300 years ago, and we'll we'll talk about that more. And, and just to be clear for the listeners, we're only covering chapters one through ten, and there's 22 chapters total. So this is just the first half of the book on this episode, and then next week we'll discuss the second half. And so, just it's basically a summary of human existence and social sociology and social interactions and why we are the way we are from a biological and evolutionary point of view do you think i did i did did i do it justice or? Uh, you did a pretty good job and uh you know especially so you're pretty in, in depth with the review and i think you know if you read the book any of you guys who are interested um with this like he uh it, it, he goes so deep into some of this stuff that's why I wonder, and that's why I have a hard time recommending this book to people, is I wonder who it is for. Oh, I'd say everybody. It's important to know where we came from. Yeah, I, I, listen, I, I, it is important for sure, but it's not, I mean, I don't think the level that he goes into is really necessary for the average human being to to have uh, in today's society. So, for example, you don't need to know the exact year that you know Neanderthals disappeared from Europe. You don't really, that's not, uh, it's a good idea to have a basic timeline of these kind of events. Yeah. So I guess it's important to stress it. I don't know exactly what his discipline is, but I would assume he's an anthropologist and anthropologists are people who study human origins, fossil records, uh, look for old campfire sites from 20,000 years ago and look for bones scattered, whether there's dog bones intermixed, uh, whether they buried the dogs or buried humans, just, and then using the, the little information that we can have to try and piece together what life was like. It's important to stress that there's people that spend their entire lives steeped in this this kind of scouring through the fossil record and trying to piece together our past. And, and I guess he's trying to present that to the masses, but you're, you're right, it's probably maybe not for the, the everyday person. You're right, because he does have he does have all this knowledge on the subject and that's why he's writing the book. You know, obviously like he is, um, yeah, the field. So you'd say, so I understand why he, what he, these are things he thinks are important, mm -hmm. you know, like these are things that, you know, obviously are very important to him. Um, as far as like what I was listening for in the book, like that was not what really did it for yeah. me. Like I have a basic understanding of the human timeline already. Uh, I don't plan on starting any, you know, advanced quality classes or, or anything like that that I... Yeah. So you're sort of like, uh, of like the Sherlock Holmes point of view where your brain can only hold so much information. Like, God damn it, I wasted my time on this stupid book. Oh, I don't... Listen, I, I want to say that, you know, knowledge is power in, in all senses. Like, literally, I'm not, I'm not mad, you know, I'm not like, oh, you shouldn't have told me that, I'd rather be an idiot. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, believe me, that is, that is not that is not my case at all. My my idea is more of lines like 
if I need this, um, to the listeners, you'll probably never ever need any of this shit in the book. But you might, if you're interested in beginnings and where where the human race, yeah, if yeah. you basically if you want like an in depth timeline of humanity from basically when we were monkeys up till the present, and he actually, I uh, full disclosure, I've already read the book, but I'm rereading it. And uh, he goes into scientific age, current day, and, like, extrapolates what societies might look like in the future with, like, uh, hyper technology and that kind of stuff. So so if you're interested in, like, kind of a progression from the beginning to the current state of things of, of humanity. Full disclosure for me, I have not read the book. This is my first time through. But I don't know where the human race is going. Uh, you know, for all I know, they're extinct yeah, by now. Alert, we, I don't know. I haven't read the It's end. a nuclear holocaust so. is, the, uh, is the final chapter. I'm very curious to find out where yeah, <laughs> the Earth exploded. Yeah, you know, I'm just going to go live a hedonistic existence until the end. Well, well, now I don't even know if I should bother reading it anymore, James. So, okay, so to listen to back off uh, from, my, from, my, uh, from my previous points, he has some... He has some really good things in this book that I think is definitely worth. like so. For example, um, you know, I've I've talked about this some of the things I've learned in this book to like a few of my friends at work and stuff like that. Like I have done, uh, you know, I brought, I brought yeah, stuff to my brother. Uh, about, oh, what's your favorite? Yeah, what's what's the best parts? Do you think? Uh, best part, man. I, I really so my two favorite or the things that you've shared with uh, other people because those are probably things that hit home. Yeah. Okay. So my my two favorite one is the. Um, the, like that why we have why we're at the top of the food chain and we have these fears and we have these breeding habits and we have these like I really like that and because it was the fact that we went from the bottom of the food chain to top so fast uh, I yeah. thought that was really we went from scavengers like eating bone marrow like we used to be yeah. we used to be because we would be the last on the site like the the hyenas would come eat the carcass and then the crows would come and we'd go and scare away the crows and break the bones and eat the marrow. <laughs> so that shows you uh, where we stood on the food chain. Yeah, and another thing that I really like is, uh, so my two favorites, uh, the other one is when he talks about the agricultural revolution. And yeah. it's just a completely was- different. Um, so I really like how he talks about the agricultural revolution and how it's just like completely different than any other take on it I've ever heard. Like, most people believe the agricultural revolution is because we got, you know, humans got so much smarter and so much better that they basically invented agriculture. You know, in the way he makes it sound in the book, it was like we were domesticated by plants. <laughs> yeah, like, that is interesting. And it's um, and, and he makes a lot of really good points for this. So, uh, you know, for example, like the diet of a farmer is so much worse than the diet of a of a. Oh yeah, I love that part with. The he explaining like how hold on I had a quote from it that like this isn't a word for word quote but the agricultural revolution was one of the biggest frauds in the history of existence that like we were the losers like we had a life so it's just to summarize like hunter gatherer life was uh, more close knit so you had stronger relationships you had less disease because they were in such small groups that you couldn't sustain uh, disease. They had much more varied diets, so they were eating like one day they'd be eating, you know, fresh, uh, fresh killed meat, fresh game, freshly uh, scavenged uh, 
plants and actually the they said uh, hunting was sex- secondary, gathering was their primary. So most of their food stuff came from gathering, but they their vari- their diet was extremely varied. Their teeth were much better because they weren't relying on strictly on one type of grain. And and then we kind of traded all of this for security in in the form of agriculture, but like we were in many ways we were the losers. We went we started having huge cultures with uh, our, not our huge societies with many 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 people we just kept growing and because our food stores grew but the type of food that we were eating we were eating one particular plant we were living in groups like more infant mortality went way up because diseases in larger cultures were much more prevalent and also we were in close contact with livestock uh, the, i i got to emphasize that we're probably we're not doing justice to the book really if you're if it sounds at all interested what we're talking about you got to you got to read it or listen to it yeah. i listen to the audiobook this is but there, yeah i definitely um i don't want to say that this book is boring by any sense like it is very interesting and he really you know these these are my two favorite points but he definitely has a, a few others um, i have some notes on some of them but well what were you saying about the agriculture what what just that kind of what i was covering or was there other stuff about that, that you yeah found? pretty much uh exactly where you were going with it i really you know i didn't know that before uh reading the book i always thought like everybody else that uh the agricultural revolution was a huge you know our brains were bigger and we we're smarter and, and we got all these benefits off of it yeah you know it, it, it like i said the plants domesticated us it really was a win for them wheat went from being uh you know a very rare uh plant to basically Quote. the largest yeah, in terms of genes so so that's another thing that he talks about a lot that like a biological sense like who is the winner in terms of evolution and if you count like winning as being the most prolific species on the planet then like the the clear winners are dogs humans chickens cows wheat corn and like a few other human things like we've like they're the Although their existences might be less than uh, desirable, they're in terms of just sheer biological point of view, like the number of genes being in existence. Yeah, they're, they're sort of the co-winners of the agricultural revolution. Another another point I really like basically is when we went from, you know, when we went from being hunters and gatherers to this agricultural lifestyle, we wiped hundreds of thousands of genomes off the map <laughs> oh my god we have yeah. performed genocide on uh entire species by- over and oh, over wow. again it's yeah so for the listeners for the for the people who don't know what we're talking about first of all we there's a good chance that we eradicated most of the other uh genera of human so there's many forms of homo sapiens so like neanderthals as well there, there's like I don't know the exact number, but hundreds, probably hundreds of them. And there's a good chance that we probably caused most of them to go extinct. And not only them, but also just tons and tons of other species of uh, particularly land animals. Until the present, we didn't really have a large impact on the oceans, especially in like a perfect example is the... uh, the colonization of Australia where we went over there and the animals had no idea what humans were. So there was megafauna. So like huge sloths and all, just all kinds of massive animals. 
and within like a hundred or a thousand years of humans setting foot on Australia, they were all completely eradicated and, and extinct. We've, we've caused, I think he said that there was like 250 uh, large mammals, so like bear, different types of bears, different types of like... Mammoths. Mammoths, just, just anything that you, like large mammals, and I think there's half of that, so we've caused the extinction of half of the large mammals. <laughs> Just mammals too, like I mean, oh, yeah, reptiles every- and uh, you know everything else has gotten so many vertebrae. Like, yeah, he's there's a thing where he, again, this is not exactly a quote, but something that he said that don't believe the tree huggers that say our ancestors lived in harmony with the rest of the world. Before the agricultural revolution, humans were responsible for killing more organisms than any form of life in existence. <laughs> so, like, don't think that it was some Garden of Eden yeah. bullshit situation. Like, it's like you said, we we found our way to the top of the food chain very quickly, and maybe didn't handle that as well yeah. as could have. Man been. has uh, basically ever since we, uh, you know, flipped the coin and went from the bottom to the top of the the food chain. We have totally been a um, the most deadliest species to ever live by far. Like there, yeah. bar none. There might be a few other species oh, yeah. out there that have you know killed two or three other species, but not only have we you know eradicated the rest of our genome other than Homo sapiens, uh, you know we've yeah. just wreaked havoc on every single species out there. Yeah, it's it's crazy. That's a good reason to listen to the book in terms of like ju- yeah just the, how we decimated the environment it, yeah yeah it's the crazy. history of mankind is not a uh, not a flowery one that's <laughs> not beautiful no i think a bloodbath is probably a better yeah. <laughs> a better uh, uh way to describe for it. any of you out there that might be uh religious uh fanatics uh if you're listening to the show first of all there are probably better uses of your time uh, second of all, he bashes religion um, fairly hard on, on some several. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is he not... is not a he's not a born again Christian or anything like that. Like, yeah. much, um... so, again, he, th- I, I get the impression that he's sort of like an alien viewing the race, the human race from outside, and he probably thinks your fairy tales are comical at best. Yeah, yeah. He, that, that there's a bearded man in the sky that grants wishes. He does not um, support that theory. No. Not at yeah. all. So, uh, I, yeah, no, he, uh, I know. He... I don't want to point too, too many things to that exactly. I don't want any... I don't want to hate emails for some crazy churchgoers or whatever, so I'll, I'll let his words... Yeah, you listen to the book. It might change how you... Yeah, view. if you're religious and you read this book, you, it really might change how you review religion. Yeah, because I mean, it it is a good, in, in, from that sense, it is a good portrayal of just like no bullshit. Like this is as far as we can tell in terms of like, because science, we talked about this last week, like physics and a lot of hard sciences are well, their accuracy is sort of very, uh, they have very high levels of accuracy. But when you start like delving into like how societies were 200,000 years ago or 100,000 years ago or even 30,000 years ago. It's a lot of guesswork. I mean, you can like, it's kind of like I said before, you can base a lot of that on like how they, like sites, excavation sites, what kind of bones you find, uh, pits of like 
bones with human markings on them where it's clear that the animal is butchered with some sort of stone tool and then you find a stone tool nearby you find dog bones nearby dog bones possibly buried in alongside humans it's all they're, they're piecing it together it's not like f equals ma and it's clear that like this is the absolute answer two know? plus two will always equal four regardless of you know the uh, yeah. constant that is not like that yeah there's definitely a lot of guesswork in it but but it's good guess i mean that's uh, people dedicate their yeah. anthropologists dedicate their entire lives to trying to get to the bottom of these issues it's not you just know, like and that's oh yeah there's 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 a lot of serious thought serious discussion people trying to get to the bottom of it ideas that are obviously not correct they debate them they they say okay this is probably the best situation the best uh hypothesis to go into like what he uh, uh he supports a lot of these claims with um with facts in the book so let's say he so for example there's a part in the book where he talks about uh basically the um how like like how likely you were to die in combat as a hunter and gatherer you know i think it's around like five percent and he bases this off of um different archaeological different archaeology sites that they found where people um so for example they were buried young you know at like the age 18 with a fractured skull or some like yeah. combat related injury um cuts on the bones because yeah. A lot of it, a lot of trauma doesn't even military trauma doesn't leave scars on bones. Like you know, you could be pummeled to death. Yeah. But he, but there was enough that we can get an estimate. You know, there's enough like mass graves and stuff where you can see that pretty obvious that one hunter gatherer society eradicated another or something yeah. like that. So he and you know he pulls up dig sites from all these places and he you know he says they're not uniform. Like for example, I think. Uh, in the same timeline, he pulls up two sites. One is in uh, South America, in Chile, and the other one is in Babylon. And their, um, you know, their rates are one's like twenty five percent, and the other's like three percent. And they're the exact same timeline. Yeah, yeah, exactly same point of time. You know, and, and a lot of these, again, you know, we don't know, but a lot of these probably have to do with you know their tribal uh, beliefs. There's no reason. You know, we, it's so interesting. Yeah, there's, they're different cultures, you know. You yeah. They're all very different. There's there's no, like, uh, homogeneity that you can expect across these cultures. Like, they're not. there's no reason to think that, like, a group of, uh, like, people in one continent are going to behave in any way at all similar to a group of people in another continent. So. You know, he makes the comment about uh, there is no, there's no genetic imprint that makes you a capitalist or a communist or... Yeah. Oh, that's a that's a whole thing. That's actually a central topic of the book. A lot of what we've been talking about, honestly, we've only gotten through mostly pre-agricultural societies, and then that was the first, I guess, kind of the cognitive revolution. And at one point, I wanted to make about the cognitive revolution. What made that possible is our our ability for language is like a factor of a hundred beyond any other animal. Like animal monkeys can say like. And, may, and they'll be like, oh, that's an eagle. There's an eagle in the sky. Like, take cover. Or there's a lion on the ground. Whereas one of the points he makes is that, like, humans can be, like, two weeks ago at the bend in the river past the deep pool, there was seven bison, several of which looked like they were underfed. So they might be prime targets for, uh, you know, like, some sort of hunting expedition. 
Th- that's part of the cognitive revolution, just how specific and how subtle our language is. So that's like a huge tool that we can obviously use to our advantage. But yeah, so a lot of what we've been talking about is pre-agricultural societies. And, and what you were just hitting on in terms of the agricultural societies is, 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 is actually like I would say one of the main theses of the book is that complex societies, and so we're talking beyond about 200 people, so hunter-gatherer societies tended to remain below 200 people. And and we're talking about when you get into even early uh, empires, like the Syrian Empire, you're talking about needing to bind together, get groups of hundreds of thousands, thousands, or even millions of people to work cooperatively together for, for some common goal, which is presumably the maintenance and the continued existence of the empire and and in order to do that this is again this is one of his main thesis is you what makes that possible is basically shared myths what uh, some sort of uh like religion is a perfect example so like shared sets of beliefs that like or like the divinity of your ruler like this guy is mandate my king is mandated by the gods to uh, to exist and to rule. And another important one is money. Money binds us together in a way that religion could never do. Like everyone, the amount of trust that we put in money is phenomenal. You know, like it doesn't, I could go to China with a hundred dollars or a hundred thousand dollars and it's just a bunch of, you know, it's a complete fiction. It's a complete figment of our imagination. But like we all trust that that money has some inherent value every human on pretty much every human on the planet is like okay that even though i know it's just paper that represents some shared trust in a a, a substantial value whether it's food just lots, lots one of my, uh, one of my favorite points that he brings up as well is about um the corporation so for example yeah. a corporation is not a doesn't exist yeah it, it doesn't exist and if you can take a corporation and uh you know what a corporation is not the people that work there you could kill everyone that works at ibm today and tomorrow morning ibm would still exist you could burn down every building ibm has and tomorrow morning they would still exist you could kill everyone and burn down all their buildings and tomorrow morning ibm would still exist well yeah. that is insane you know, IBM is just, you know, you literally cannot kill it. It is an idea. It is really interesting, you know, but with that being said, there are ways to kill it. Like if IBM goes bankrupt tomorrow, IBM... Or under- the state, He's, he says you need to invoke some higher imagined order in order to eradicate a corporation. So like an imagined state, like he, he, he the United States government could say... IBM, you've broken too many rules, and we you have to disband. And so, like, but the United States government is no more of a reality. It's not a physical reality. Like things, certain things exist in the physical world. The laws of physics exist. Rocks exist. Dogs exist. But nothing. There's nothing at all natural about the United States government. Like it doesn't have to exist. It's just a shared set of beliefs that we all agree upon. So. It's crazy. I, that's one of the things I love about this book. That it, and it goes back to, like, he's like an alien. He's like, oh, these interesting groups of monkeys clearly believe that they're, uh, you know, like, that all men are created equal. Like, he, he goes into that, that, like, 
comparing the code of Hammurabi, which is basically a set of like if then statements. So like if you steal from somebody, we'll cut off your hand. If you kill someone's wife, your daughter will die. Just just weird like a set of rules and it, it's a hierarchy, but it goes into contrasting like if you got if you took Hammurabi and uh, one of the and a modern day American and, and got them into a room together. Neither of them, they're both arguing a set of human constructed beliefs. And you could be convinced that yours is better, but Hammurabi could say, no, I actually, I think mine are better. And the only person, the only person who would win at the end of the day is which of the two is better able to sustain their society. Like if it has the ability to, um, like, which is a better method for keeping a group of humans cohesive and working cooperatively towards some goal? Yes, uh, he's extremely <laughs> bipartisan, how he uh, judges humanity. <laughs> it's actually it's very impressive. But, you know, I like that statement of, the, of, ha- of a Hammurabi citizen to the United States government, like, which is, you know, which is better... Uh, is kind of a very strange it's not you know it's weird for us to think about right like as an american you know spoiler alert i'm an american citizen uh it's hard to imagine that you know oh capitalism might not be the best you know maybe communism is is better maybe their society Uh, although uh, did you get to chapter 10 yet he's definitely not uh he's definitely not pro communism he talks about money being like did you get to chapter 10 uh, I have not. I think I stopped at the end of 9. This was one of the... So chapter 10 is, is amazing in the sense that he talks about money as basically a universal... A tool for universal cooperation. So like in, in like barter societies, like it's very hard. You need to know like a thousand conversion rates. So like how many apples equals a pair of shoes? How many uh, pairs of shoes equals a dog? How many... Uh, dogs equal a head of cattle, and so there's thousands of conversion exchange rates, and whereas money, it, it's a completely fictitious. It's an it's a human construction, but he calls it a universal exchange medium that allows almost anything to be converted into almost anything else. So he makes notes where you can convert violence into knowledge. Yeah, I mean that makes sense. It really does. So one of the things that I that he talked about that I found interesting was he tried to describe why almost all societies are patriarchies. Uh, it's very rare to find um, non-patriarchal societies, and then there's certain monkey species, for instance, bonobos have uh, matriarchal societies where women will gang up and dominate the males if they get if the males get out of line. But like almost all human societies are uh, are male dominated, and he tried to explain why, and he said that basically there's like right, it was kind of a cop out. He kind of said that like biology is insufficient for studying like that level of complexity, and we're not even really sure why that arose. And uh, I don't know. Did you get? Did you hear that? Yeah, part? I know what you're talking about. I remember that part. And some of it was like th- these are different possible theories that uh men maybe are are of course more aggressive and they are physically stronger but he said that even that argument might 
doesn't really hold water because that's only true on the average. Like there's women who are like, it, it's basically a bell curve and th they overlap. Like there's, a, there, there's not, they're not two distinct bell curves. So there's definitely women who are significantly stronger than, than some, men. you know, than some men. It's not like they're cons all women are weaker than all men. Yeah. And so he said that didn't really hold water. He said there's a possibility that like stereotypes are actually incorrect, that men are actually not necessarily just aggressive and warlike, but also uh, possibly better at social maneuvering and aggressive socially as well. Yeah, aggressive and, and good at like social situations and making their way to the top of social situations. And so I, I don't know, it's just kind of like. I thought it was an interesting topic, and it's almost so like... hard to be able to, you know, this is the kind of thing that three hundred thousand years ago we literally don't have enough information to be able to judge these societies and why that they, you know, acted the way they were. Um, do you remember the part where he talks about the uh, the tribe and like the hunter gatherer tribe in Russia that had that they were kids buried with like kids yeah. of like wolf teeth and all these like crazy things that like there's no way a tribe of a hundred should have been able to get like we basically have no idea you know we didn't have well, his, his argument with them was so this was uh i actually made a note about this because i thought this was really interesting as well is that this was about thirty thousand years ago where the, there was two children buried and yeah they were just completely covered in like very intricately carven bone reliefs and stuff just extremely intricate and the what do you one of the things he was trying to emphasize is that even that far back so 30,000 years ago is well before like that's 20,000 years before the agricultural revolution but it shows that we even back then we were able to have extremely complex uh sociologic like extremely complex societal structures and that those two buried kids there's no way that they were like good hunters or good leaders like the reason they had to have had some other sort of significance because they're they were like real young like seven or, or you know society again these the society beliefs that we can't uh we can't discover you know they might have been, uh yeah. they, they might have believed that they were reincarnated gods yeah that's what he was getting at yeah so, what yeah, reincarnated gods or he had several other options too like they might have been children of very important people or yeah. they were basically like carved bones that they were buried with and he said that it probably took about seven thousand hours in order to make those bones like they did an estimate and in order to make all the stuff that these kids were buried with, it was probably about 7,000 hours. Which, think of that, that's an ins for a small tribe of, like, at most 100 people. Listen, um, some of the other possibilities he suggested was maybe it was multiple tribes that, like, got together or, or something like they have, you know, it's hard to... Uh, yeah, it's really maybe, hard to... Maybe once that, a year they met at the summer solstice, you know, and sacrificed two kids or whatever. Yeah, it could have been human sacrifice, yeah. he That was one of the things that he, uh, actually one of the points that he made, and we kind of hit on this earlier, but he called it the veil of silence, that, like, because these hunter-gatherer societies, they left no written record, they left... The most that we get is, like, grave sites and, like, campsites with arrowheads and like campfires and stuff so you only again it's a patchwork quilt you really gotta 
try and piece it all together and uh, try and figure out what the hell was going on. And, and the best we can do is guess. I mean, maybe these kids, who knows what, what, what was the significance of these two kids who s- this society felt necessary to dedicate 7,000 hours of carving bones into intricate patterns in order to celebrate their death. So it's just, who knows? It's, and I'm sure there's, that, that's probably one of many, many sites like that where it's just like, what? Why Why did they do this? Like, we don't under, you know, what What the hell is going on here? All right, James. Well, that's probably a pretty good place for us to uh, stop. Yeah, there. wrap it up. And then we'll get to uh, the rest of the book, which uh, I look forward to um, reading, and then you will have the uh, get to read. Yeah, so the human race for me in the meantime. So for next week, yeah, we're going to start with chapter ten, and we'll go from chapter ten to twenty, and uh, maybe we'll uh, recap anything that we see that we missed in our notes. But uh, I, I hope you guys enjoyed this. Uh, I definitely, even though we kind of said that it's. It's a bit of a difficult read. Uh, if you're if you're interested at all in human history or anthropology, I I, I would recommend it. if you have the time. It's, it's worth. Uh, it, you'll get a good dose of human history from the beginning. I have definitely uh, you know struggled through worse. Sure, like it it is not written as a textbook would be written, for example. Like it is still written uh, to be enjoyed. Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. All right, everybody, I guess until next week, have a great week. And if you're reading the book, we'll wrap up with chapters 10 till 20 next week. Don't forget to email us if you have any questions or any thoughts about the show. 